The three men who died at SL1 on that cold January night deserved proper burials, and their families deserved to be there. But the nature of the accident made that much more difficult. Richard McKinley, who was the only one to survive the initial blast, spent two hours on the floor of the mangled reactor building before rescuers could reach him. In that short period of time, he absorbed an enormous quantity of radiation, which, as I mentioned in the last episode, would have been enough to eventually kill him if he hadn't died of more acute injuries. It took 24 hours to retrieve Jack Byrne's body and a full six days to extract Dick Lake, who was pinned to the ceiling. So you can imagine how radioactive they had become, and not just their bodies. Everything about them was screamingly hot. All three bodies were so contaminated and activated. Metal exposed to neutrons can be activated. So the iron in our bodies, the fillings, you know, these, watch, your watch, glasses. belt buckle, everything yeah. could be activated. All of those metals, both in and on their bodies, were made up of normally stable atoms. But the uncontrolled chain reaction of the SL1 explosion released all these loose neutrons that then bombarded those stable metal atoms and made many of them radioactive. In addition, the blast embedded bits of uranium and fragments from the reactor into their bodies, adding to the contamination problem. One scientist said that the measurements of radiation coming off Dick Legg's body were almost as high as those coming off the destroyed reactor itself. But all three men were so radioactive that it was dangerous to simply be in a room with them. Because of that, several rather insensitive officials advocated for putting the three bodies in drums and burying them on the grounds of the National Reactor Testing Station. No ceremony, no funeral, no families. Essentially just treating their bodies like radioactive waste. Ultimately, the Atomic Energy Commission decided to return the deceased to their families. After, of course, a pathologist reduced the radiation coming off the bodies. That horrific task involved removing certain parts of their corpses. I'm not going to go into the grisly details of how the autopsy team did that. If you want to read about it, I'd suggest Todd Tucker's book, Atomic America. Suffice to say, even after all this, the Army still had to transport the bodies and bury them in lead-lined caskets. The government ensured the families kept the funerals short less than 10 minutes, and officials from the AEC monitored the entire proceedings. As an added measure of precaution, they lined Dick Legg's grave with three feet of concrete. It has a warning on it so that nobody ever disinters the guy because he's gonna be radioactive to the end of time. Jack Burns was buried in his hometown of Utica, New York, and Richard McKinley at Arlington National Cemetery, with a permanent note attached to his record of internment. Victim of nuclear accident. Body is contaminated with long-life radioactive isotopes. Under no circumstances will the body be moved from this location without prior approval of the Atomic Energy Commission in consultation with this headquarters. Not the lasting legacy that any of these men had probably dreamed of. And it raises questions about the larger legacy we might be leaving future generations when it comes to nuclear energy and waste. I'm Laura Krantz, and this is Wild Thing, Going Nuclear a series about the power of the universe, contained in the tiny little package of the atom. You and I are living in the atomic age. The endless debate over harnessing that power. The mysteries of the universe. And whether we humans are responsible enough to mess with it. Of benefit or of destruction. Of good or of evil.
Once officials had dealt with the remains of McKinley, Burns, and Legg, they had to figure out what to do with the SL-1 building itself. How do you prevent it from going critical again? How do you demolish it safely? How do you decontaminate everything that came into contact with it? Todd Tucker pointed out that there's a simple answer. Time, distance, and shielding. Those are the three things that can mitigate exposure. Time, it'll go down over time. Your distance from the source and then shielding. That's why you like bury stuff in concrete. So those are really the only three things um, that you can do it. And then dispersal, you know, is another way of kind of accomplishing those things. But that simple answer is still quite complex. The wreckage of SL1 remained incredibly radioactive. So the workers tasked with dismantling it had to follow strict precautions. They could only work for a few minutes at a time before they received their maximum allowed yearly dose of radiation. And then they'd have to wait months before they could work again. Given those conditions, cleanup required hundreds and hundreds of people working in extremely short shifts. As they dismantled the damaged reactor, any part that might be useful to the investigation went to the warehouse where scientists had once built nuclear airplane engines. And everything else? Buried in giant pits roughly 1,600 feet away from SL-1. Workers interred the contaminated building materials, gravel, and bits of debris into a deep pit and covered them with seven feet of dirt. That was the standard of the time, and officials considered that sufficient well into the 1970s and 1980s. The reactor itself, the most radioactive and dangerous piece of this, had to be moved 40 miles to something called a hot shop, a laboratory specifically designed to examine radioactive material. An armada of emergency and security vehicles traveled with the truck carrying the reactor, blocking all traffic at a safe distance and moving it around 10 miles per hour. That 40-mile journey took four nail-biting hours as the damaged reactor still gave off enormous doses of radiation, measurable even as far away as 25 feet. Workers also dismantled and buried the metal silo that had held the reactor, but officials chose to let the other adjacent buildings remain in place. They were still radioactive, but much less so than the reactor building, and this would be an excellent opportunity for scientists to experiment with how to decontaminate a building, which they did to the best of their ability, vacuuming and wiping down surfaces, scrubbing floors and walls, until they considered it safe. People continued to work in those buildings for decades. By 1985, our understanding of contamination improved, and we realized that the levels in those old buildings were still way too high. The government ordered the destruction of all remaining SL1 structures. They ordered another cleanup in 2003, this time sequestering all the contaminated soil in a leak-proof landfill. Every five years, the Department of Energy tests and retests the soil around the former SL1 site. And if there are any traces of radiation from SL1, the cleanup will continue. Even though the standards at that time were less rigorous than they are now, dismantling SL1 took a tremendous amount of time, effort, and thought. And that process exemplified the thorny problem of how to deal with nuclear waste in general. Todd Tucker again. Well, it's a crazy, laborious process. I mean, you have to separate things out to the extent you can to different levels of radiation. Like, you know, there's there's short-lived isotopes and long-lived isotopes, and then everything gets treated differently, uh, whether you're going to, like, encase it or bury it. But at, at the end of the day, like, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but all you can do with any of this stuff is just try to put it out of reach of humanity. Like, there's nothing you can do to make it not radioactive other than wait. 
This is one of the big concerns about nuclear energy, the question of what to do with the spent fuel, the radioactive waste, the contaminated materials. Because even if we are exceptionally efficient and avoid any disasters or leaks, there are always still some radioactive byproducts that we have to deal with. And this million-dollar question came up in every conversation I had about nuclear energy. Can we safely operate, use this nuclear power, dispose of the, the waste properly? Are we going to bury it forever? Are we going to store it with the leaving open the option of somewhere down the road recycling? Or do we recycle now? And I think that the idea of an intergenerational poison or that metaphor is really about the waste and the materials and how do we store them safely? How do we protect people from that? I heard over and over again, even from people who advocate for nuclear energy, that we have to figure out the waste issue. Now, if you're like me, the words nuclear waste might conjure up visions of green glowing goo spilling out of barrels. It turns out, like everything else in this world of nuclear energy, it's a lot more complex than that. No, it doesn't glow in the dark. Robert Davis was a Navy nuke who first came to Idaho in 1972 to train on those reactors anchored way out in the desert. He's retired now, but after leaving the Navy, he ended up working in waste management, specifically on how we package radioactive materials. My job at that time was to make sure that all the procedures were followed to make sure we know what's going into this package. And then we, we provide all kinds of certifications on the package that can be anything from a stainless steel drum to much more robust overpacks of things that can literally withstand a train impact. As Robert points out, all waste is not created equally. And while there are many kinds of nuclear waste, for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to be talking about high-level waste, which includes spent nuclear fuel. The uranium or plutonium in a nuclear reactor goes through a chain reaction and generates energy along the way. When that fuel can no longer sustain that chain reaction, it's considered spent. This spent fuel is what people are usually talking about when we talk about waste and nuclear reactors. And Robert gave me a very simple overview of the process. Let's talk about the uranium fuel cycle. Um, the most important part about that is that it also produces excessive neutrons which allows then those neutrons to help spur the fission of other atoms, and this is what we call the chain reaction. We heard all about this back in episode two. Essentially, that chain reaction produces a lot of heat, which in turn gets used to produce electricity. What you're ended up with is a lot of heat, a lot of useful energy, but you're also left with the broken parts of the former uranium atom. There's still I don't want to make a cartoon out of this, but I, I like to say that they're still hopping mad. <laughs> they're very radioactive. These are basically the remains of split uranium atoms, and they are super unstable and screamingly radioactive. So the first thing we do is try to cool it down, which in this case means both reducing the radioactivity and bringing down the actual temperature. If you put it in a deep pond or a deep pool, the water becomes a, a very good shield against the radiation. These are called cooling ponds or cooling pools. Think of a giant swimming pool lined with concrete and pretty deep, usually 40 feet or more. And the spent fuel elements will stay there until some of their radioactivity reduces. A lot of the most radioactive elements have an extremely short half-life, less than a year. 
If you remember from the last episode, a half-life is the amount of time it takes for a radioactive substance to decay by half. There'll be a lot of people that'll call me on this one, but for the, a general discussion like this, after one or two years, the fuel is still very radioactive, but it has lost a lot of its thermal heat. Okay. And so at this point in time, you can still shift the, the mode of storage from underwater pool to above ground, heavily reinforced steel, concrete vessels. Even after time in the cooling ponds, the radiation coming from these spent fuel rods remains high and requires careful handling and storage. Each element goes into dry storage, which are these very large steel-reinforced concrete containers. They look pretty utilitarian, just big gray cylinders, layered with enough concrete that you can safely walk right up to one. And then, those dry casks, as they're called, just sit there in tidy rows, usually on some sort of asphalt or concrete pad, because there's nowhere else for it to go. And that's what leads us into the question of what are we going to do with this spent nuclear fuel? because we've got the value out of it, and now we have to discard its uh, remains. Now, it's not like we didn't think about this early on. The question of what to do with the leftovers has always been on people's minds, but we thought there was a plan. Back in the early 70s, the United States government made a pact with the commercial nuclear power generators that said, go forth, produce power with this uh, nuclear stuff, and we will worry about what to do with it. That was a long time ago, and ever since the 70s, the nuclear generating companies, they've been paying into this fund to support a waste repository. Back in 1982, multiple states had nuclear power plants with spent fuel piling up. Congress approved a plan to look at potential sites for two national repositories, including in Washington, Texas, and Nevada. In 1987, over the objections of state leaders, Congress amended their plan and chose Nevada, specifically a remote geologic site known as Yucca Mountain, to be the nation's only nuclear waste site. There is debate as to whether the site was chosen because it was actually the best site or because of politics. Nevada had no power in the Senate. I was brand new. So Nevada got it, and it was that result of that that I got had to do a lot of work on it. That was former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, whom you may remember from last season when we talked about UFOs. I spoke with him before he passed away in 2021. And the good senator from Nevada was not keen on the idea of burying America's nuclear waste in his home state. He made it something of a personal crusade to stop the project. And it was, it was very hard to do. I, I shouldn't take credit for it all, but I had quite a bit to do with it. I made this the issue in Nevada. He hammered on the point that transporting all this material would be dangerous, threatening communities along highways and railroads. What if a train derailed? What if a storage cask fell off a truck? People did not want nuclear waste to be shipped through Denver, Colorado, Salt Lake City. They, you know, we, a lot of people joined and this is not a good thing to do. He brought up the possibility of terrorist attacks. Surely our enemies would be keen to get their hands on these materials. Especially with domestic terrorism in those days coming to the fro. And of course, tourism is Nevada's number one industry. 
and what tourist would want to go to a radioactive state? For the record, twice a year, visitors flock to the Trinity site in New Mexico, where the military tested the first atom bomb. So many want to visit that the military now limits access and checks people's pockets to make sure they're not stealing chunks of nuclear blasted sand. This season of Wild Thing is supported solely by First Light Capital Group. Founded by female entrepreneur Alba Toll, First Light Capital Group is an innovative investment firm that strives to generate outstanding financial returns and change how the industry fosters talent and diversity. First Light has a dual-pronged mission. First, it trades public equities, private equities, and debt using its proprietary data-informed investment process. And second, through a separate seed fund, it seeks to cultivate the next generation of female entrepreneurs by providing women-led businesses in the technology and biotechnology sectors with the capital, infrastructure support, and mentorship needed to take their companies to the next level. To learn more about First Light Capital Group, please visit firstlightcapitalgroup.com. Now, to be clear, Senator Reid was not anti-nuclear. I am a total enemy of coal. It's so bad. Uh, that's why we have climate change. There are other reasons, like oil, natural gas. So having the feeling I have about fossil fuel, I think we should not give up on nuclear for generating electricity. So if we could get rid of all fossil fuels in America, we'd be much better off as a country, and then we'd have to do what we had to do to make sure that nuclear was safe. He just didn't think the spent fuel should be in his backyard. Why do we need to ship it to Nevada? Leave it where it is. Put it in a dry cast storage container. That's the answer to it now. Leave it where it is. You don't have to transport it. Transporting it is scary. In 1987, when Harry Reid first took on this task of shutting down Yucca Mountain, he sat pretty low in the ranks of the Senate. But by 2011, Senator Reid was the Senate Majority Leader, one of the nation's most powerful politicians, who used his clout to strip the funding for Yucca Mountain out of the federal budget, despite the fact that billions of dollars had already been spent on the project. Attempts to get the project going again have fallen flat, and Senator Reid seemed to think that he'd successfully killed the plan. I personally think it's never going to happen because they spent billions of dollars already on Yucca Mountain. And if you go to Yucca Mountain now, what do they have for all that money they spent? Nothing. There's nothing there except a hole in it, a tunnel in the side of a hill. It would cost billions of billions of dollars to restart that. I don't think it's going to happen. But the government promised to create a national repository, and people have paid taxes into the fund for that for decades now. So the fight over Yucca Mountain may not yet be over. That spent fuel has to go somewhere, as Robert Davis points out. Let's talk about how many nuclear plants are there now in the United States. And its number's about 100 nuclear reactors. Every one of those sites has all that spent fuel still there. They can't move it anywhere because there's no place to put it. Not to mention that if we are truly concerned about accidents and spillage and criminal types stealing these materials, wouldn't it make more sense to have it all heavily guarded in one place? How many places do you want to administratively control for the next few centuries? Do you want to do it in one place or a hundred places? In Robert's opinion, it's way better to have everything under one roof because he thinks it will make the job of protecting future generations much easier. But where? 
because we are talking about very long timetables for spent fuel and other extremely radioactive materials, with half-lives that extend for thousands, if not millions of years. Although by then, humans may also be long gone. The nuclear waste doesn't get phased out over a few decades. It's going to be around for literally thousands of generations. Don Hancock is the Nuclear Waste Program Director at the Southwest Research and Information Center, which is an environmental watchdog organization based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He thinks the world will phase nuclear energy out over the next few decades, replacing it with wind and solar. But he acknowledges that nuclear waste, including spent fuel, is a problem, even if we completely shut down every nuclear power plant right now. In terms of most of the nuclear power waste, it has been handled fairly well. But on the safety standpoint and on the economic standpoint, we have to spend time, effort, scientific work, and money on figuring out how to better handle it long term. How do we avoid some of the mistakes we've been making and not making them worse? And how do we come up with a better way of solving it? He mentions four potential options for dealing with nuclear waste. Leave it on or near the surface, put it deep underground, put it in the ocean, or put it in the air, which is outer space. Don points out a problem with using the oceans as a dumping ground, even if the nuclear waste is well packaged. We don't know enough about the ocean and deep ocean and what corrosions would be long-term with metals and other kinds of things to know that you wouldn't have leaks. We have dumped a lot of stuff, and not just nuclear materials, in the oceans over the years, not to mention lakes, rivers, and streams. And I'd argue that it's generally not a very good habit, because if there's one thing we need more than energy, it's water. So I understand why people might not be too keen on using the oceans. But why not space? Why don't we shoot this stuff into space? Well, it was too costly, it was too hard to do. Challenger accident came, and what did people think? Huh, you put a little bit of waste on the Challenger, when the Challenger blows up, it goes anywhere and everywhere, right? So that leaves us with two options. What we're currently doing, which is leaving it on or near the surface, and the second is... Putting it deep underground. The thought being, and there's scientific basis for this, we know we have places on Earth that have been pretty stable for millions of years. So if they've been stable for millions of years, might they not be stable for millions of years more? So if you can find places like that, that you can adequately depend on the geology and the packaging of the waste to likely withstand being there for thousands of generations, then that seems safer than any of the other three options. A deep geologic repository does seem like the safest bet in many ways. The problem, of course, is again, where? Harry Reid and much of Nevada didn't want it in their backyard. Neither do a lot of other states. Kansas was able to say no and make it stick. And New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan, which were the next states asked, would you volunteer in the 70s, said no. No one, it seems, is particularly excited about the prospect, although the Department of Energy is again looking for volunteers. And it could be that instead of having all of it in one place, we'll have it in several locations. In many ways, Don thinks that would be better, especially since, contrary to Robert Davis, 
he doesn't think all of the waste should be in one place. We need to have multiple repositories. You can't tell people that it's safe long-term to do geologic disposal and say there's only one site in the country that could work. The burden should be shared by many, not just one. Then we need to decide what the standard is going to be. Is the standard a no-release standard? We want a place that we think will not release anything. Or we're okay with a standard that we kill one person every 10 years from releases from the repository. What risks are we willing to accept? And then we should do the exploration of what places technically and economically and politically are willing to consider it. It's a very difficult problem because you've got to have generational buy-in. And how do we deal with this problem in a way that's acceptable now and to future generations? The waste problem is one we need to solve before we get too much further with our nuclear energy plans. We can't just keep kicking it down the road, hoping we figure it out. As we learned at the beginning of this episode, the three keys to managing anything radioactive are time, distance, and shielding. So we need a place that will last a long period of time, that won't be disrupted by earthquakes or floods. It needs to be remote, distant, from people and the things we need, like water. And we should entomb everything we bury in a way that none of that radioactivity can escape, shielding us and the environment. The how seems straightforward, but the where is infinitely complex. Is it one place or many? Do we force it onto a place that doesn't want it, like Yucca Mountain, or wait for a community to raise its hand and say, we'll take it? And finally, how do we warn those future generations of the dangers that these materials pose? What permanent note do we attach to this record of internment? The question is, how do we handle it in this generation so that the next generation and the next generation and the generations to, we hope to come afterwards understand what we've done and understand why we did it and understand it enough to know if there start being problems. Our understanding of nuclear power has grown since we first started experimenting with atoms. It's likely that that understanding will only increase and potentially lead us to a better solution for the waste. Scientists have recently found microbes that can eat nuclear waste and make it less likely to move through the environment. Although that kind of sounds like the start of some sort of campy horror movie. But even as our scientific knowledge advances and our technology improves, the dangers of nuclear energy feel very pressing. Mistakes, accidents, deliberate attacks. For many, the risks still seem too high. Do our perceptions match reality? And is there anything we can do to make nuclear power less risky? If you're enjoying Wild Thing, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, definitely tell your friends. It really helps get the word out about the show and makes another season more likely. We're on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Look for at Wild Thing Pod. For more information about the show, and of course, if you want some t-shirts or cool stickers, check out the website, wildthingpodcast.com. That's wildthingpodcast, all one word. This podcast is a production of Foxtopus Inc. with generous support from First Light Capital. Wild Thing is edited by Alicia Lincoln with sound mixing and music from Louis Weeks. Our executive producer is Scott Carney, and I'm your host and creator, Laura Krantz. Thank you.